Hello, everybody, and welcome. I'm Shari De Silva, curator of the Jeffrey Bauer Trust Art and Archival Collections. Welcome to this last session in our tripartite series, Conversations Drawing from the Jeffrey Bauer Archive. Over these three weeks, we have spoken with writers and scholars across a range of disciplines, including architecture, art history, geography, and urban design, about the Jeffrey Bauer Archives. Our speakers are in fact the contributors to our forthcoming book titled, It is Essential to be There, Drawing from the Jeffrey Bauer Archives, which will accompany an exhibition of the same name expected to open early next year. In the process of working with our contributors to create this book, I had some really great conversations about these drawings that were done by Jeffrey Bauer's practice, um, about architecture, ar architectural archives in general, and about that shapeshifter known as modern architecture. So we wanted to open these conversations up to a wider audience through this series of talks. As I mentioned over the past two sessions as well, I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge the vitally important contributions of those who worked on establishing this archive and those who wrote valuable foundational texts um, upon which we could build. And of course, those who actually did the drawings. We're also immensely grateful to Bauer's collaborators, clients, and friends who generously shared their experiences and anecdotes with us through a series of oral histories, which formed a valuable research base for this project. And you can access these via our Jeffrey Bauer Trust website. Now to introduce our speakers for today's session, which is titled Maps and Modernism. Our first speaker is Jyoti Da, an art critic with a focus on contemporary art in South Asia. She's a contributing editor for Art Asia Pacific and regularly writes for Art Forum and the Sunday Times in Sri Lanka. Her writing has appeared in monographs and magazines including Aperture, Asian Art News, Flash Art, and many others. Her editorial work includes being founding editor of China Tree in Dubai, rapporteur and editor of City as Studio in New Delhi, as assistant editor of the Salon Chronicle in Colombo. In 2012, she was selected as a forum fellow at the Global Art Forum. In 2014, she won the Forbes India Emerging Art Writer of the Year Award. And in 2017, she was awarded first prize at the International Award for Art Criticism. Our second speaker for today is Sean Anderson, an associate curator in the Department of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, a fellow of the American Academy in Rome with a PhD in African art. He has practiced as an architect and taught in Afghanistan, Australia, India, Italy, Morocco, Sri Lanka, and the UAE. He has written books on South Asian ritual sculpture, the modern architecture of colonial Eritrea, and co-edited a volume dedicated to contemporary architecture and design in Sri Lanka. In 2020, he co-curated the exhibition on Rosal Islam, Surfacing Intention at the Dhaka Art Summit. At MoMA, he has organized the exhibitions Insecurities, Tracing Displacement and Shelter, and Thinking Machines, Art and Design in the Computer Age, 1959 to 89. And he co-organized with Mabel Wilson, the widely acclaimed exhibition Reconstructions, Architecture and Blackness in America, which was the first exhibition at MoMA to feature the work of African-American and African diasporic architects, which just concluded in May, 2021. 
Our speakers will make brief presentations over the next 45 minutes or so, and we will follow this with questions um, from me and from the audience. If you have a question for them, please add it to the Q&A chat box that's available in your Zoom control bar at the bottom of your screen. Please note that this session is recorded and is currently live streamed on our Jeffrey Brower Trust YouTube channel. The recording will also be available on our channel for later viewing. Over to you, Jyoti. Uh, thanks a lot, Shari. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this and hello to my fellow panelists. I'm just gonna try and share screen and see if you can see what I can see. Is that? Yeah, we can see it. We can. Do you want to try taking it full screen? Yeah, I'm trying to do that. Hang on a sec. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. There we go. Hurrah. <laughs> I always say that's the hardest bit. So thank you, Shari, for, yeah, for inviting me to think about this project, to think about the Jeffrey Bava archives and to think about architecture when I normally write about contemporary art. Um, and I just wanted to go back to last week's panel. What I enjoyed was when Janna and others were sort of mentioning this idea of the archive as something sort of fragmented or partial, which we often think of it as. And I wanted to see if we could maybe think about it this week as something uh, like something that throws up narratives and fictions and what we can do with those absences. So what if we were to think of the archive as a labyrinth, for example, um, a labyrinth of symbols and ideas where multiple paths and dimensions can exist all at once, um, a labyrinth that maybe demands a second reading. So the last three things I said are actually a description of a short story um, by Jorge Luis Borges, uh, which is called The Garden of Forking Paths and is something that I'll circle back to at the end. But today I wanna take you on a little bit of an exploratory journey through the archive, which is kind of what Shari and I, Shari and I did when we were discussing, well, what, do we, what, what should I write about? And the idea of the archive as the labyrinth, well, we started the archive took us to this idea of a map. The map took us to the idea of the garden. The garden took us to the idea of the book and the book has ended up taking us to the idea of the labyrinth. So here we go. But before we start delving into those ideas, um, I just wanted to take a moment actually to acknowledge um, three artists who passed away recently and who were all part of this generation that were actually practicing in the 60s, 70s and 80s around the same time at, that Bao was making work in Sri Lanka. And the reason I wanted to do this is because I want to acknowledge the kind of rich contribution that they had made to, contem uh, to contemporary art. But also thinking about archives, that often the most, the, the easiest way to really understand what was happening with this group, which kind of, when we talk about the canon of contemporary art in Sri Lanka, so-called, you know, we have, this group of the 43 uh, modernist group, which is quite sort of discreet and well discussed. And then we kind of leap to the 90s trend uh, coined by Jagat Virasinga. And in between, we've got this kind of ambiguous space in the sense of all these artists were doing amazing things, but we often let either, it was difficult to kind of study and define often. And the best way to do this was by visiting them. Um, and so th that's why I have this picture here of, well, of Russia, who we saw in uh, Jaffna, and Nolene Fernando, I had to include this photo because she was just the most generous person and was constantly diving into her archives to just give us information. 
and she was part of um, the young artist group, which Lucky was also um, a part of. And Lucky, of course, he's there um, smiling at a drawing that one of my kids did. And, you know, he, did, he, he didn't have to kind of invite us into his home and always talk to us, but he was. He was this character who was just so generous um, and played such a vital role also in bridging this gap between architecture and art, which we'll be talking about today. So we began thinking about these um, artists who really bridged this gap between, who had an architectural and an artistic sensibility that Bava um, surrounded himself with. Um, and especially, of course, Lucky, who um, Sumangala said, you know, really changed the very idea of architectural presentation. So um, this is where we sort of started. We began thinking about this drawing group that Lucky was part of and Ismat Rahim was part of and Barbara Sansoni. And they would go all across the island making drawings for a book called The Architecture of an Island. Now, Sumangala Jayatilaka also made drawings for this book. And when Bava saw these drawings, he invited the then 29-year-old artist turned architect. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm doing a book on Luna Ganga and I'd really like your drawings. I'd like you to be part of this. So it was 1987 at this point, and Sumangala um, tells us that Bhava never directed you. He never told you what to do. He'd drop a seed. So he'd say, you know, my, my brother had this map, um, of course, talking about brief. Um, then he'd say, you know, you know, there's old maps. I really love them, you know? So he just sort of put this idea into Sumangala's head and just let it sort of, sort of percolate. But, What's interesting when thinking about maps or plans of Luna Ganga, we know that Lucky was the first person to draw a plan of it in 1962. We then know, of, of course, also that Bevis Bava had a map of brief drawn by Donald Friend around kind of the same time. So Sumangala drew two to three versions of this map of Luna Ganga. Um, and the first one is quite stylistically close to a Donald Friend's one, as you were saying, Shairi. But then it sort of evolved. And this got us thinking really about how things are recorded and how they get re-recorded, how a drawing gets commissioned, how it gets consigned to a surface. What does that mean? What does that mean about its maker, about their relationship to the land, to the place, but also about these lineages, these kind of re-recordings, this connection between Lucky, uh, Sumangala, Bava. And actually that's why I've put this image here today so Mangala, I just love this, this, visiting him in his office, and it's got this beautiful water body by it, these birds which are flying over, and it's sort of made from all these materials, and it really reminded me of this idea of architecture by abstraction, which is what Lucky spoke about. So I've just put Lucky's living space next door to just make you think about these connections, these sort of unsaid things that kind of influence the way that they lived and thought. So the essay really focuses on this map. I hope you can, hope you can see it there. Um, it's, it's a really, really wonderful and magical kind of image. Um, this is a map that to Luna Ganga, which was drawn by Sumangala in 1989. Um, so it's drawn originally in A2 size, but then of course it's shrunk down to fit the scale of a book. So the more I stared at this map, the more I looked at this, I thought to myself, you know, it's very hard actually, if you look at it 
to try and understand from this map, well, what Lunaganga is, or even exactly where it is. I mean, if you were to drive from Gaul or maybe down from Colombo and try and follow this, I don't think many of us would make it to Lunaganga. So the more I looked at this map, I really thought it's not actually meant for anyone to follow. In fact, it was made four decades after Lunaganga was built. So in a sense, I wonder if we could think of this map as, a, as, as Jeffrey Baba marking his own journey, in a sense, to Lunaganga. And in that way, it reminded me of the early maps that um, were often actually travel itineraries. So marking your own journey um, to a place rather than really telling anyone else how to get there. Um, the second thing that I really thought about when writing this essay was um, the fact that although it, this map clearly mimics these kind of old maps of Taprabane um, or done by travelers sort of discovering Sri Lanka, this, this one is made by a Sri Lankan, it's commissioned by a Sri Lankan. And so it subverts really this whole um, colonial idea of discovery or, or, or quest, or even thinking of something as a conquest, rather Bhava was thinking of this as, you know, as, as quest. So it subverts that whole idea. And Bhava really does call it a quest um, in a letter that he wrote in 1980, which I think will also be part of the archives, will be part of the exhibition. Um, it's a beautifully written letter. It looks like it's all ciphers actually, it's handwriting. But in that, um, Baba writes about seeing 30 sites along a river before actually choosing kind of Luna Ganga and how it kind of, how he sort of chooses to unfold this space. He says, I could begin to mold it into something shaped by my present future dreams and my imaginary. So I wanted to think a little bit about how this map mirrors this idea of Luna Ganga as a space for reverie and for dreaming and for this idea of multiple narratives. And what I was really curious about were these hybrid creatures that you see dotted about the map. So I don't know if you can see this fish properly, which is in the, the right-hand corner there, but this fish, you can see when it's, when it's large, you can see that it's the head of a kind of spiky sort of fish. When it's shrunk down, it looks much more like, a, like an elephant in the sea. Um, and then of course you can see the sea serpent in the river. Um, you can see this strange fish on, on um, the island there. So I started thinking about this idea of hybrids and I realized that actually Luna Ganga, the very name itself is also a hybrid. It's a compound noun. So meaning, you know, Luna meaning salt, Ganga meaning river. Um, and actually uh, I found a book in um, the PGIR library in Colombo that was talking about how singular place names are often like this. You, know, you have an adjective um, uh, next to a topographical feature and that's how place names are often done. But if you, look at, if you look at the sort of names that are on the map, there aren't that many places that are kind of marked out. Um, apart from Lunaganga, you have sort of Bentota and Bentota Beach Hotel and you also have the word Serendib underneath it. So here Serendib is actually marking out the name of a hotel, making it, marking out the name of a place. But along with these kind of, you know, these ships and these, this very kind of um, old map kind of style, it started, make, started making me think, like conjuring up these tales of Arab sailors who used to call Sri Lanka Serendib. And this led me to another book in uh, the PGI li Library, which I think is a really 
untapped resource. It's, it's a wonderful place in Colombo. Um, and I started reading Richard Boyle's Sinbad and Serendip, um, which of course talks about, also talks about these giant serpents or these strange fish like the ones depicted here. Um, and he's discussing, he's discussing Sinbad's voyages, of course, as chronicled in A Thousand and One Nights. So Boyle explains that these strange fish are probably based on dugong, marine mammals, which um, are also known as the sea equivalent of elephants. And they can often be found off the coast of Gudramalai, which is in northern western Sri Lanka. So I really enjoyed kind of um, unpacking like these sort of fictional elements that are in the map. Um, and I wanted to come back to how they reflected to the actual place. So how these fictional elements translate to these actual and artistic elements that are sort of reflected throughout the garden. Um, and I wanted to draw your attention to the cartouche, which is in the bottom left-hand corner of the map. If we look at this cartouche, you see a nude male, of course, um, holding this peacock um, next to the words Lunaganga Benthorta. Um, the nude male, of course, is mirrored in these Roman statues that you have um, in Lunaganga. Um, and then you have a leopard, a sideways seated, le sideways seated leopard there, which is also has a sculptural equivalent in Lunaganga. Um, and I think that was actually made by Fiona Hall, one of the artists that used to came. The, the guest book at Lunaganga is actually full of um, all these artists that used to come and stay and spend time in Lunaganga and make work. So that's sitting there. And of course, this pineapple um, that's in the corner also is a nod to kind of the pineapple fields that you have um, in Lunaganga. Now this cartouche was actually originally drawn by um, Lucky in the 1962 um, plan that he made, but it was later to become the Baba Trust's logo. Um, but Lucky is really the, the one that we credit with, you know, um, being the first one to incorporate these elements of allegory and fantasy, leopards and centaurs into the architectural drawings. And when I asked um, Janna about this, he said, well, it was so that the, the building could become closer to what Baba had in his imagination already. And this is of course also, oh, sorry, just to say that you also see um, Pan and you see Janus and you see the serpentine wall um, and this field of jars, which all of these things are also reflected in the book. So that's a fictional scene you see in the top right hand of um, in the field of jars, which you see a person being carried in a palanquin. And then this painting that you have of um, the uh, Naga, the serpent, which you have the reflection of the, of the serpentine wall. So this kind of idea of these characters and these fictional elements carry through into the book um, and uh, uh, throughout the book on Lunaganga as well. And if we think about it, this idea of centaurs, nagas, fauns, well, they're all hybrid creatures too. Um, and we know that Jeffrey Bava was inspired, you know, if we think about why it was that he was sort of had this uh, garden full of all these, you know, mythological characters. We know that he was inspired by uh, gardens he saw in Europe, such as Villa Caprarola in Rome and Villa Lante, which were full of Greek and Roman mythology. But I just wanted to point out that Lunaganga is also full of objects and paintings that are also 
from India, from China, and from closer to home. And in the book, you've also got this um, mythology, which is uh, much more local, where he talks about descriptions of um, the spirit of a dead monk who lives in a tree, um, and the view of a place that has buried treasure belonging to a Prince Doravana, who I couldn't find anything about, by the way, when I looked up. So if anyone knows anything about that, please do tell me. But these, these you suddenly, you know, the more that you looked at, at this book and the garden, you realize that Lunaganga is a place full of stories, real and imagined. And this is possibly why um, when I was speaking to Sumangala about it, and he was talking about the time that he spent in Lunaganga doing these drawings, he said, living in Lunaganga is like living in a book. And I absolutely loved that. I loved that quote. Um, and that's something that I began thinking about more when I went and um, visited it again, because I think Lunaganga is somewhere that you have to go again and again and again. So I was walking through this one particular path called the Middle Walk, um, which Baba describes in the book as this narrow path, which runs along the northern face of the hill between the upper and the lower gardens. Um, so it opens up to the sky at one point, but then another point you find yourself sort of going through this tunnel. Um, and then at the end, he says, the path becomes a maze of steps leading down to the east terrace or, um, oh, sorry, up to the east terrace, down to the water garden or along to the yellow courtyard. So I was thinking about this whole idea of um, these different paths that you can take. And it started making me think of the short story, um, The Garden of Forking Paths, which was written in 1941. So seven years really before um, Baba found Luna Ganga. But there are, lots of uh, there are lots of theories about this story that was written by Borges. Um, it's essentially, it's got a frame. And the frame is that um, a man has been told that his grandfather has set off to construct um, a labyrinth. And he's also told that his grandfather has gone off to write a book. And he realizes at some point, the protagonist, that the book and the labyrinth are one and the same thing. So I'm gonna read you a really short um, excerpt from, from this, if I can actually, hang on a second, just move this. From the Garden of Forking Paths. Um, Beneath English trees, I mediated on that lost maze. I imagined it inviolate and perfect at the crust, crest of a mountain. I imagined it erased by rice fields or beneath the water. I imagined it infinite, no longer composed of octagonal kiosks and returning paths, but of rivers and provinces and kingdoms. I thought of a labyrinth of labyrinths, of one sinuous spreading labyrinth that would encompass the past and the future and in some way involve the stars. And I won't go on, but that entire passage is incredible. This is when the protagonist is still um, envisaging the labyrinth as a physical space or as a garden. And the more you read this, I mean, with the provinces and the kingdoms and the entire thing, it really does make me think that this passage could have almost been written about Lunaganga. There's this wonderful reflection. Um, so this short story, The Garden of Forking Paths, it's about a concept. It's about this idea of this book or this labyrinth, but it's really about a concept that is not just about a forking in space, like a physical forking, but about a forking in time. And the more I 
thought about this and I went back to the mat and back to the garden. I thought about this idea of embracing multiple possibilities of um, diverse pasts, presents and futures all at once. And these ideas of these stories of Taprabain, of Ceylon, of Serendip, of Sri Lanka, all kind of coming together. Um, the Garden of Forking Paths is, as, a, as I said, it has a frame, it's a story, but it's also a story within a story, which is just like A Thousand and One Nights, which it actually also references, or epics closer to home, like the Mahabharats, the same sort of idea um, of Itihas as being this kind of the word for history, but also for story. So I'll leave you with the thought that if Bhava saw Lunaganga as a garden within a garden, as he often speaks about it being a garden within a microcosm within Sri Lanka, the larger garden, perhaps we could also think of, of Lunaganga as a story within a story. Thank you. That was, thank you, Jyoti, that was wonderful. Um, Sean, over to you. I'm going to experiment with the <laughs> screens now. We still see um, that white frame. All right. So we let's have Shankar. Um, uh, I don't know why this happens, but <laughs> we are. Um, I, I think in the, in the in the in the meantime, I I will uh, also extend my my great thanks to the Jeffrey Bawa Trust and the Lunaganga Trust and to Shairi and Tilani for not only putting today's events and last two weeks events together, but also what will become, I think, a very important text, volume, uh, and exhibition of, uh, of Bauer's, uh, Bauer's studio's drawings. I also have to say that to follow Jyoti, the great Jyoti, uh, is very humbling. Um, and I was taking notes uh, throughout Jyoti and really quite, <laughs> quite extraordinary. So very fortunate to, to be here uh, in New York, talking to Colombo, talking to the world, as it were. And so I wanted to begin today by uh, reading uh, a bit from my essay and also reflecting on thoughts that I had had uh, since completing the essay and then looking at images that I had taken over the years uh, and returning in a way to the essay, to kind of the initial impetus for what, uh, what has become for me a, a great interest in this idea of the drawing as not only an artifact, but also as a translation. And if we think of the drawing in that kind of coupled moment between a physical object and the a repository, if you will, from uh, Jyoti's, uh, Jyoti's talk of, of narratives, of stories, and similar to Channa's uh, presentation last week, then what do the drawings, what do drawings become uh, could also be considered an extension 
and a transmission uh, of those very same lines in space. So uh, I'm going to ask that Shanika go to the first slide, please, or the next slide, please. Excellent. And I wanted to begin today with a disclaimer for all of you that um, my uh, intersection with Sri Lanka was more than 25 years ago, uh, as I was the research assistant to Bonnie McDougall. She was my professor in, in architecture school. And through my years of working with her in, and her archive, uh, it was she who told me about uh, Bawa's drawings. It was she who, in fact, referenced Bawa's drawings in her own, her and her husband's own anthropological studies that they undertook in the 60s and then in the 70s in the Knuckles region of vernacular, and specifically looking at vernacular architecture. So I've always been fascinated by her drawings or their drawings and the cataloging of these interior spaces, not only the, the, the walls, the architecture, but how they were inhabited, how the tools and the instruments through which life transpired within them were also very much recorded and considered and in, in fact identified uh, with their very specific uh, Sinhala names. And so I'm not sure you can see, but the text that you see below these uh, ground planned and, and axonometric drawings are actually the, the linguistic equivalents from English to Singhala and often into local dialects. So I, I attribute, uh, attribute Bani uh, to my love of Sri Lanka. And uh, in fact, I had written letters to, to Bawa's office um, as a student, hoping that I might get a chance to work with him, which I uh, unfortunately never did. So I wanted to begin then today with a talk, thinking about not only the networks that uh, are happening within these drawings, the kind of almost cosmological idea of the house, of nature, and also of materiality, and thinking about these through the lens of uh, ideas around modernism and modern architecture more specifically. So Chanika, next slide, please. Thank you. And so I'm going to read now. Intersected by transnational migrations of capital and ideas, the island nation of Sri Lanka, formerly Ceylon, is a nexus through which the emergence of new spatial forms were redefined by graphic and spatial boundaries. Lines on a map, in a drawing, demand from us the locations from which to view and organize the self. The drawing in turn continues to invent languages, to construct graphic ecologies. Next slide, please. Throughout the early and mid 20th century, prototypes for seeing were engaged by architects, artists, and designers to inscribe critiques within often shifting terrains. Next slide. Apart from eschewing the binaries embedded within Sri Lanka's centuries old colonial legacies, modern architecture on the island and by extension, modern art on the island was a mechanism for asserting difference 
by articulating a convergence of diverse viewpoints while registering their limits. Throughout Jeffrey Bawa's storied of, drawings were used to depict an unearthing of built and unbuilt boundaries among the projects executed by his office. Next slide, please. Not necessarily beholden to the finality or banality of construction documentation, Bawa's use of drawings instrumentalized bodily perception. So here I'm showing two works uh, and in the previous slide, uh, works by the 43 group of which Jyoti mentioned. Uh, on the left here is George Keat and a house from 1953. And above is a later work by Lionel Pyrrhus, um, one of many uh, of his drawings and paintings that began to articulate the linear of the line of the horizon as well as the landscape. Next slide, please. Bawa's drawings are thus suspended at the intersection of multiple thresholds positioning landscape and structure, reason and knowledge. By observing a selection of representations and their translation produced over decades by dedicated colleagues and associates, today I will be speaking of uh, an awareness of continuities among aesthetic domains that reinforce how the architectural drawings produced by Bawa's office re-scripted approaches to the manifestation of a post-colonial Sri Lanka. Next slide, please. Since the calculation of architectural spaces within the late 19th and early 20th century in South Asia was arguably one of fixity, the drawings and built works of Bawa instead depict a layering of mobilities, of transients, in which the collapse of foreground and background often accentuates the individual and collective bodies in motion. Next slide, please. In others, the far and middle distances are also focused and precise, and such ocular effects are preserved throughout Bawa's career. So in this early drawing of a post office in Ratnapura, what I'm interested in is how the architecture is foregrounding a very large tree or a set of trees. So the architecture becomes literally the frame uh, to nature, the frame that begins to foreground and script an idea of how we perceive nature beyond. And yet they are melded together in almost uh, perfect harmony. Next slide, please. And here is then the translation of a, a different project, the Steel Corporation, in which the line of the building here is a, a concrete building with glass that is rescripting or reframing the landscape of Uruwela beyond. Next slide, please. So from a survey of drawings in the Bawa archives, the majority of those four projects begin and end with the use of an extended ground plan and later often using a sectional elevation. The plan for Bawa is a fundamental strategy for one to visually access a haptic choreography of moments, of textures, and other sensorial elements expanding for uh, expanding what for some critics reveals a horizontal cross-section. 
when scrutinizing contemporaneous architectural documentation from regional uh, practitioners, such registers of these temporalities, of these choreographies, are not so prominent, with the exception of Bawa's work. And so I wanted to now just look at examples uh, in which the drawing begins to indicate not only a framework for understanding nature and the landscape beyond, but how we could understand the landscape itself and the buildings themselves as, uh, as drawings themselves. So to take the idea of a two-dimensional line in space and render it in three-dimensional volumetric perceptual space. Next slide, please. And uh, I'm in particular going to be looking at three different uh, ways in which the drawings begin to uh, uh, illustrate or articulate um, not only the ways in which the human body interacts with nature, but how nature that architecture Is this okay, Shari? Yeah, it's perfect. All right. So unfortunately, you'll see my images on the, on the left side, but don't look at those. Um, so we're looking at y Yala Rock Village here, in which the architecture is literally built within uh, the space of the landscape. And a second example, then, uh, of around the same period, is Palantala Palantalawa Estate Bungalow, also built within the landscape in which the architecture uh, begins to be enfolded within and become part of the, of the boulders and the boulder landscape uh, on which it is built. And for me, this is really beginning to show that the drawing is not necessarily always the, the instigator for ideas, but often is shown after the idea has been either built or imagined by Bawa and his collaborators. A subsequent example uh, around the same period might be that of the Bento de Beach Hotel, uh, in which, say, the excavation of uh, modes of transport or modes of movement mm -hmm. along, yes? Oh, sorry. Uh, um, among the modes of transport uh, and movement in the landscape, and here is an entrance to a temple complex in the southern province, then could in effect become the space of transition and transmission, as it were, in the Bentota Beach Hotel, both line and space being carved within the architecture to create uh, these, uh, these thresholds.
And just to give you an example, what I, I became very interested in the drawings of Bentota Beach here, an early drawing in which the say conventions of shading, which would often indicate depth or a perceptual field in uh, a representation of an architecture, there is no shading. There is only the use of line and Sorry. density. Yes. Sorry yes. to interrupt you. I think that there was a lag and we just have some messages um, on our chat saying that this, the, the Yala slide is still visible. Okay. Do you mind if I take over the screen sharing and just, yes, I'm so please. sorry about this. So I'll just pick up where we left and then. Perfect. Um, yeah. No worries. Oh, um, and I will ask you to advance the slides then please. Yes, though something is actually, okay, there we go. So we, so we were in Palantalawa here and then Bentota Beach. Here is the, the kind of excavation of, of rock to form the, the, the access to a temple complex. And then ultimately looking at Bentota Beach's early drawings where the, the architecture is in effect carved from this landscape and then the architecture or the buildings themselves become spaces for the excavation of these modes of transit uh, by virtue of the density of the line, uh, indicating not only movement, but landscape, light, and the potential for transformation itself. Next slide, please. And here I just, I wanted to include another mode of representation of a later drawing. Um, we think it's from the Bali Hyatt extension where the, the sectional elevations are used on all four sides, not only to indicate kind of a, a cardinal or a directionality for how one sees, but also to locate one's eye at the center of the drawing and therefore the center, which would be here a, a kind of courtyard space or an interior space looking out. So we are in a sense, both within and without uh, in this drawing. Next slide, please, Shairi. And here um, I, I, I wanted to uh, just articulate how I was looking at a number of drawings in the archive fairly recently. Um, stacked upon one uh, another. And by virtue of these being on Kansan or, or um, even Mylar drawings, I love the fact that the drawings themselves become transparencies. So we can see the layering here. They are uh, off kilter, obviously, but that off kilter, that, that um, kind of displacement of the ground plane and the line becomes a way of understanding, in this case, Kandalama and the layering of the floor plans uh, in and of themselves. Next slide, please. And here is one example in which that negotiation of the line and the landscape and, and of, of course the rock here, uh, in a way anticipates a form of disappearance, a disappearance into uh, the hotel proper a disappearance perhaps into the landscape as well. Next slide, please. And I just wanted to show an, a few other examples um, in which the architecture begins to, again, uh, layer these ideas of, of occupation, of ocularity, 
of movement and materiality in particular. And here is an overhead view of the Ina de Silva house under construction. Next slide, please. An interior view of a frame within a frame. The next slide, please. The idea of the linear meeting uh, the natural, the linear becoming part of the natural, and that the materiality and the friction, if you will, of these materialities create an entirely new surface for understanding the space of the interior. Similarly, uh, next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, and to, to reference uh, Jyoti's presentation, a drawing, a drawing by Sumangala, a sectional elevation drawing by Sumangala of Lunaganga, where the ground plane, like Jyoti's presentation, the ground plane becomes that, that surface upon which the eye travels, the eye moves into and out of the architecture and that the landscape and the nature becomes the framework for understanding uh, these movements uh, and these choreographies. Likewise, the kind of organization of the ground plane here uh, outside of the house, the main house at Lunaganga, and that the merging of these two trees uh, becomes another line or another drawing in space itself. Next slide, please. And the last bit of drawings, I just wanted to reference this kind of, of idea around the ground itself. I, I strongly believe that the ground uh, for Bawa and for his collaborators became that surface upon which ideas of nationhood, of autonomy, of self-sufficiency, uh, and also of an understanding of one's place in the world uh, was registered. And so I'm going to show a few examples here where the ground is not only organizing, one, organizing one's perception uh, of the landscape and of nature, but actually becomes the architecture in and of itself. So here is a project for Yala from 68. Next slide, please. Uh, sectional elevation of Ruhunu where the land actually, that line that is defining the ground plane becomes repeated to a degree where the roof planes become a new ground plane. The next slide, please. And lastly, here where the ground plane, that of the ancient capital of Cote, uh, begins to enter into the, the parliamentary space to become that space of history, of being uh, a new nation, of being a democratic nation um, that is built upon uh, this surface that has and holds so many meanings. My last images then speak to uh, the organization and the coalescing of ground, of surface, of materiality, and of course, built space. And I have to thank uh, Suhania Raffle for showing me this drawing that Jeffrey gifted her uh, at one point. I love this drawing because it's not only kind of um, a, a molecular structure, but it also talks about the ways in which uh, in the 90s, perhaps, the articulation of architecture and history becomes this melding 
uh, of surface and structure. And here you can see the colonnade, the organized colonnade, the temple structure. Uh, I think it's actually a, a step well um, and the kind of foregrounding of materiality coming together to create not only that kind of abstraction that Jyoti mentioned, but also a new nature. Next slide, please. So where do, does that leave us? I believe that uh, the lines then become uh, for us uh, looking at these drawings, looking at these landscapes, and of course, looking at these buildings, I ask, do drawings possess time or do they erase it? Bawa's drawings oscillate as the image of such material and the material of image. Next slide, please. His drawing buildings locate manifestations of transparency among histories of the island's evolving landscapes. Next slide, please. From such imperfect yet cultivated grounds, the deeply ingrained surface upon which architecture is founded, the drawing offered Bawa and his associates revelatory modes by which to challenge the intersection of visual and temporal experience. They teach us how to disappear. Next slide, please. As Bawa's architecture today continues to redefine the capaciousness of Sri Lankan and Asian spaces more broadly, the drawings produced by his office counter the hypervisibility of buildings as media and embody as ever the complex truths of their manifestation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sean. And I'm sorry we had to take over your um, presentation. Zoom decided to intervene, um, but that was really wonderful. And um, thank you to you both. Um, we, I, I see we've already started getting questions and I just would remind um, our audience that if you have a question, you can pop it into the Q&A uh, chat box at the bottom of your Zoom control panel. Um, perhaps before we take that question, um, I just ask one question of uh, both of you really, which is um, you both, you referred to the line in your drawings, in your presentations, and um, the line is like an abstract, but also indexical element, especially in um, an architectural drawing. And um, I was wondering if either of you have any remarks on the lines that we looked that you looked at in these drawings, um, especially in the light of two of the kind of themes that I that I in your papers, which is um, cartography as well as modern architecture. And the line does change with modern architecture. Um, do you? Sean, you're on, on I was going to say, do you want to take that first? Because I loved what you said at the end of your presentation, Sean, and thank you for that. And I was also taking notes. Um, I loved what you said about did drawings possess time or erase it? Because I hadn't really thought about the erasure of it before. Um, so I don't know if you want to say something, Sean, first. Sure. I mean, I, I think for me, I've always been kind of conflicted about what a line is rather than what a, and what a line does. Uh, 
on one hand, if we think of the line being drawn on a map, that line is a violent one. It divides and it defines and it encloses and it does all of the work, if you will, of, of redefining not only the spaces in which uh, people live and, and become, but it also challenges the very identities of what those spaces and individuals become. So the line in some ways, um, when it is drawn, and uh, when I was working as an architect, I always loved to make drawings and thinking about even what a line weight would do, right? So you would have the thick line versus the thin line and it would do, it would do various things to the eye. Right? It would change one's perception and in fact, reading of that drawing. So um, I think in, as, as you look at the kind of arc of drawings in the archive, the line begins to do different things, not only for different projects, but I think as over time uh, for Bawa and for his office, um, the line begins to be even more embedded with meaning. It, 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 it's holding more within it. Uh, and so that's why I was trying to articulate an idea about the kind of capaciousness, right? That it's not just representational. Uh, it, it is a language to, to use Jyoti's word. Uh, and it also begins to talk about um, process, right? And process of making, process of being, process of, of occupation, right? Um, it's interesting what you say about the line on a map sort of dividing and being quite sort of violent because, and it's also interesting that Bava used people with an architectural and an artistic sensibility sometimes to draw. Um, so this map, for example, that of Somangalas, it's got, you know, you think of um, um, architectural drawings, certainly, or I do maybe, um, you know, of the line representing something real in, in, in space and something that, um, you know, a scale and it has sort of precision. And yet this map to me, I didn't read it as a, as a person coming from an architecture background. I read it as a, as a drawing, as, a, as I would maybe an artwork because it's full of these fictional elements too. And it's full of kind of these things that don't exist and that are kind of coming from imagination. Um, but I also like this idea of what you said, Sean, about the line and time, because um, there is this aspect of sort of duration there in the map, but also in the garden. If you think about the sort of carving of lines in, in time, and maybe this is a bit more of an ex existential way of thinking of the line, Shairi, but you know, if you're thinking of Bava and the traces that he leaves on the world and carving these lines in space and, and in, in this landscape, but also that Luna Ganga is this ever evolving, changing space that um, it's something very dynamic. And I think that's what surprised me in reading um, this, this map and thinking of the archives and thinking of um, this idea is that it could be a dynamic evolving thing. It didn't have to be a static body of knowledge, which is what I normally think of as the archive, you know? So. Um, I don't know and, if that answers. I mean, I, I, I've always loved that map because it, in a way, is the antithesis of what I was describing, right? Where, you know, a, a group of white men sitting down and, and dividing up territory to define new nations, right? Exactly. In fact, 
the map that you're describing and, and that Bawa's, Bawa is describing with Lucky and, and Sumangala does the exact opposite. It reveals, it opens up and the hyperbolic space that, the, that they are defining. And it reminds me very much of kind of medieval manuscripts, right? Or like a, a hymnal that you would open and that the song is written in, as, in image as much as words or um, music, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Thank you both. Um, I, I agree. I think um, one of the really the great pleasures of this exercise we collectively been in has been the fact that these lines speak back to us and that we can read them in different ways, much like language. Um, we're getting lots of questions, so I think we'll we'll start taking audience questions. The first one is for Sean from Mohammed. Uh, he asks, what do you think about the evolution of Bawa's process of making space? Uh, I, I forget in which presentation um, we heard that in many cases, the drawing came after the project in a way, uh, or came in the midst of, uh, of the project. I've always been fascinated with this idea of process of processes, right? That that in architecture, often the kind of convention is you begin with an idea or a question, it becomes a sketch, the sketch gets uh, made into something. So it's always, I wouldn't say procedural, but processual. But the process is, is one in which also the spaces that are being um, uh, created don't end with the drawing and they don't end with their construction, uh, that they continue. And the, that evolution uh, then is something that is just constantly being changed or, or being transformed or evolved uh, over time. So um, what I would, I, I mean, I would go back to Jyoti and, and say like this, like never being instructed in how to represent something is in a way indicative of a, a, a type of building process or a type of architecture that you don't really find anywhere else in the world where there is no answer, right? There is no one-to-one -one relationship to this being that but instead it is being opened up to the occupant or the inhabitant or the client or whomever. Um, and in the case of Lunaganga himself, right? So it's, it's he in himself is unfolding his ideas of the world much like you would a drawing on, on a table, but in volumetric dimensions and spatial dimensions and temporal dimensions. So that's a more kind of aesthetic view of, of process, but I think it allows for um, a degree of flexibility that you find in the architecture where you, maybe something didn't work on in drawing, but it actually works better when it's built. Thank you, Sean. Um, our next question is how accessible was Bawa's architecture 
And how many did it reach? Was it accessible only to a few? Who were the clients and the demography of the users? Lots of questions. Um, do you want to take a shot? Well, I mean, we could critique. We can critique the. We can critique all architecture in a way as. On one hand, we we are now finally recognizing and acknowledging the labor of those who make architecture, of those who contribute to the making of architecture. Um, so that's one kind of end of the spectrum. When we look at Bawa's clients, I go back to Ina in the 19, early 1960s, I believe it's his first house and they become lifelong friends, they become collaborators. But here is, at that time, not necessarily an extremely prominent artist, textile artist of, of that, but a person who begins to cultivate the environment and her ideas with the architect and with eventually with the architecture. And I would like to think that the individuals that were commissioning Bawa, um, both in Sri Lanka, but also in India with the Madurai Club or even in, in Bali. Um, and to imagine that what they were seeing or hoping to see was something in his work that transcended class. It transcended um, the financial and the capitalistic um, ideas of who could make architecture and who couldn't make architecture. Uh, but we could also then read many of his buildings as a return to ideas kind of fundamental to what it meant to be Sri Lankan, right? And by putting these ideas together in built form, is his architecture for one client? Or is his architecture actually about contributing to ideas of, of nationhood, of locality, of climate, uh, and so forth? So I think there's an oscillation. And I'm sorry, Jyoti, I would love to hear your, your thoughts on this as well. Um, no, I think, you, I think you summed it up really well. I think it's really interesting when we talk about these things and when we're sort of presenting the work and we're looking at the archive and the questions often bounce back to, well, what, what kind of a person was Baba or what was going on with him? Or what does this reflect on sort of uh, the question of sort of identity um, comes up also. Um, and I think that, you know, as Shairi sort of said, you know, he was quite an, an enigmatic character and, and um, wouldn't often want much said about him. And I just think it's an interesting exercise to maybe look at the work as something different and then to look at um, the person as something very different. So um, if we can possibly separate those things, sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. I mean, I could also add uh, to that, Jyoti and Sean, that one of the things that the archive is actually telling us is that there's much more, much more work that was done than what we know or what maybe reaches the um, beyond outside of um, Colombo, for example, and he did a lot of work for the state. He did a lot of education buildings. Um, and this is one of the other interesting things about how we talk about building or the 
the works of an architect because certain projects, um, for example, hotels might, um, they, they, and Bowers hotels particularly have had a really kind of successful, um, con they, they continue to be used and reused. And um, of course it makes them also very well known and he did some amazing projects but he also did a lot of other kind of lesser known projects and I think one of the exercises of um, this book and this exhibition and what we hope it'll start is um, speaking about the breadth of work um, mm -hmm. not just in Sri Lanka but also overseas. Mm -hmm. um, um, I think we in have... Here, what I would say too, just to the point of, I, of questions of identity, I think this is uh, a set of questions that needs to be asked, um, not only of, of Bawa, but other architects on the island, but also of, of architecture writ large. If we discount or diminish the roles of those who contributed to the making uh, of building, the making of architecture and landscape, we are effectively erasing the narratives, the viewpoints, and the ideas in the labor, of course, of, of so many that, in effect, to, to use your word, Shairi, like became the shape-shifting aspect of modernism and global modernism uh, as a way. Thank you. Um, another question, I think, by the same. Um, audience member was was looking at the past or the vernacular emancipatory as a poor or third world country should they have looked forward to the future and what was Bauer's look on outlook on urbanization um, I have to, something <laughs> tiny to say not on on the last part I can't answer about Bauer's take on urbanization because I don't know so much, I'll leave that to you, Sean. But this idea of emancipatory kind of came up quite a lot in the contemporary art sort of um, field, looking about, looking at this idea of um, that group of artists that I was saying was quite, in some ways, is 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 ambiguous. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean ambiguous in the sense that um, it's it's our interpretation that we still need to kind of um, delve into those stories. There, that rich material is certainly out there. And there were certainly people practicing in that space. But if you look at even what the young artists group were doing, which was sort of this period of 1957, I think, to 76 around, it was so it was links up after the 43 group to, um, to then what was happening later. Um, they speak, uh, like Noeline and Lucky certainly spoke about it as this emancipatory kind of space as something that because the modernists had gone out there and sort of defined a certain space of, well, we want to be looking to doing something new and something um, which is hybrid and something very, you know, that looks away from the, the British way of having been taught, that then they were left in this sort of space to kind of play and to be very free and not have to define kind of things. So I mean, ambiguous in that sense as well as these um, beautiful inconsistencies actually and, and the richness of that. Um, so I can speak to that kind of certain time that, that they wanted to, that those groups were feeling very free to also look at nature. That was part of that idea of that freedom and that play. Um, but as for Bava, I'll, I'll hand over to you, Sean. <laughs> I mean, I, 
I would not say that uh, Sri Lanka, Ceylon should be considered a poor third world country, first of all. It's an incredibly wealthy country in so many ways. Um, and this imposition of a meaning of third world comes from outside. It comes from um, financial terms, more, more or less, imposed upon countries that then kind of keeps them static in order for capital to then always kind of be brought forth. But I, I, I would love to kind of imagine with Dhoti what the vernacular and the, and the emancipatory together reflect for, for the 40, I've been long fascinated by the 43 group in as much as setting a stage for ideas about space and about that reflection of nature that is so close. Uh, and unlike the Western ideal where, where nature holds mystery and it holds danger for the young artist group, for the 43 group and then, you know, for, for Bawa and so many uh, other architects that follow him, nature is there as foreground, as background, as stage, as space of potential, right? So that's where I find that the emancipatory rests. Um, and it is not about trying to free oneself from the kind of economic um, uh, constrictions of external governments or external institutions to define what the island is, right? So uh, in terms of urbanization, then I, I would be very curious if he writes anywhere about what the city is, what Colombo becomes, right? Uh, over time, we all, or many of us know what Colombo has become now, which is perhaps the antithesis of what it should be. Uh, but you could look at the State Mortgage Bank building, for instance, as one kind of example in which he's thinking about um, the cross ventilation through the building and its design so it maximizes breezes, but it's made out of concrete uh, and, and its design is very much about kind of filtering, literally filtering air. Um, and you could then extend that to say, okay, well, this is a high rise building in a part of town that signifies then the state financial instruments and then maybe personal and collective autonomy through those instruments. Of course, the mortgage bank became something else, right? So its function or its, its denomination changed. Um, but I think even in that Podar house drawing, you could think of uh, you know, the monumental and the organization of the monumental as an indication of moving in space, moving in a kind of urbanistic, highly defined uh, kind of spatial world that is defined by him or, or his associates. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, yeah, and I, I agree that um, I, I would add rather that with, as far as the question of urbanization, um, again, I, I keep kind of bringing the archive up, but I, um, 
that is kind of the focus of this set of talks and the things that we've discovered are these reports done for the state um, on, for example, golf face green or on, there's a, um, another document, an amazing document, which, is, which we've called the roundabout report, which literally um, looks at every roundabout in the city and then um, looks at how they could be kind of uplifted. Um, and so I think he was very sensitive to um, urbanization and it really, I mean, Colombo changed tremendously during his lifetime and during his working years. Um, and I think I just also had a thought on, you know, looking back and um, looking to the future. And I think he definitely did look to the future. I think, um, I think architecture is always imagining a future. Um, and he often, I mean, as Chanda mentioned in his last talk, imagined it often to the point of when the building is ruined or when Lunuganga is normal to the very end, really. Um, but um, I think one of the really interesting things about his approach that we can kind of glean from the little excerpts of writing is um, that his approach was not so much of a rupture from the past, um, but it was more of a continuum, but very deliberately looking back to look forward. Um, so I just wanted to put that there. We, we kind of have that in writing almost um, in that text that he did for the, what we call the white book. Um, like Janus in the garden. Like, exactly like Janus. <laughs> um, we have one more question, I think, which is from Bansi. How much did Bawa glorify the laborers and their contribution in building his ideas? How did it evolve over time? What was, it effect, what was its effect on his work and scale? I mean, I don't have an answer to that either because I was looking at a very, very specific thing in the garden, but, and the specific piece of, um, of the archive. But I do wanna just agree with Sean that I do think, um, because I think what I said earlier sort of sounded a little dismissive and I don't mean it that way. I do think that it is really important when we're in 2021, looking back at these sort of documents and these archives and these letters and these buildings um, and the garden, which you can think of an as an extension of the archive, that we are asking ourselves these sort of important questions, which, you know, where we are looking back and looking at gender and class and all these kind of, you know, quite things that we, we think of quite automatically today and the labor that went into it and the acknowledgement. Um, I think these are things, and I know that Shairi, you know, you're, that we, when we had conversations about artists and various people that Baba interacted with and things that have been has sort of come out since that you were quite sensitive to that and you were saying well yes the 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 trust is looking at these kinds of questions quite carefully so um I don't know if either of you have an answer to it but I, know, I am aware that you're conscious of it Oh, I, I would respond. There's another um, kind of question statement uh, the, in the Q&A about an elitist clientele and uh, say the, 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 the to quote, the exigencies of the big state projects versus say a free salon. And I, I think architecture can never be wholly autonomous from the systems that um, allow for it to be imagined and, and constructed uh, on occasion. 
Um, and so, yes, I think architecture is always going to be complicit in defining or redefining not only um, spaces of gender, spaces of labor, spaces of identity, but when we kind of zoom out from that and say, you know, what for in, in this case, what does what does Bawa's architecture tell us today? What does it show us today? And rather than saying, uh, in many cases uh, throughout kind of modernist uh, architecture history, those voices, those identities of, of which I spoke um, are erased. Instead, we can acknowledge and we can amplify how the meaning of architecture changes, the occupation of, of Bawa's architecture changes, and in effect then uh, respond to the ways in which our own selves and our own nations and communities begin to change. So it, I would never allow, I would never say that um, Bawa's architecture is static or fixed in any way because depending on the viewpoint and depending on the person who is either reviewing, experiencing, seeing, occupying these spaces, they themselves will encounter it in their own way. And I, I think that is, that is the complexity and the beauty of working with this material. Absolutely. Um, we, have, we have a second question from Pansi actually, which was, how much has Bawa's work helped to build an image of countries as work team, especially Sri Lanka? And I don't know if you want to tie it to um, the previous question, actually. Shilthi <laughs> um, or Sean, do you have anything to add to that? Um, just trying to read that question, sorry. So it's at the bottom, it's um, how much has Bauer's work helped to build an image of the countries he has worked in, especially Sri Lanka? Hmm. Well, I have one tiny thing to say again. It's not specifically maybe answering the question, but um, what I really liked about exploring this idea of mythology in the garden was that it became very evident this was not a person who was sort of transplanting an idea of something he had seen in Europe and just sort of plonking it in the middle of Sri Lanka and filling it with very European mythology. But this was someone who had, was very widely traveled, very widely read. And this kind of plurality um, that's really evident um, pointed to many, many, many different kind of countries. I didn't actually get a chance to put in all that. There's many more objects in the house and in the book that also point to... Um, artists that came from India, drawings that he had made, objects that he has from, I think, Indonesia, if I'm not wrong, also just, you know, from all around the world. And it's that idea of um, this being a place that then, you know, Luna Ganga, in a sense, is, is yes, it's in, he's, it's very Sri Lankan. He even sees, um, so the stupa that's five kilometers away and, you know, the view the, of, of, of the kind of lake ahead, like they're all an extension, they're all part of Luna Ganga in that sense. So of course it's very Sri Lankan, but I also, 
imagine Luna Ganga to be almost this kind of portal, this space that's kind of not a country at all in any country because it points to so many different kinds of countries. And it's that plurality that I think is so, um, so wonderful and generous and kind of forward looking also. Um, yeah, and speaks to, I, I guess that does speak to him as, as a person if you want to see it that way as well. And also I think in, to, the, to the question, it also indicates an idea about the nation that if we think historically of of Ceylon and, and Sri Lanka as uh, as the intersection or or at the center, like the the map shows, right at the center, so many transnational networks of ideas of of, of artistic practices of of capital, of, of colonialism, all of these yeah. things, then can we also then begin to understand that in, in Lunaganga's case, that it becomes a center for understanding one's place in the world. And yeah, rather than saying that it's moving out, um, we can then actually begin to trace in a way with these lines, uh, a new map, uh, a, new, um, a new set of spaces and ideas that uh, challenge, uh, I think they challenge us to kind of reconceptualize what it means to be human, what it means to be of a nation, uh, and what it means to be in a nation as well. Thank you both. Um, I, yes, I completely, I'm just thinking back to that lovely phrase you had, Sean, about the drawings um, possessing time and dissolving it. And I, I just, it, I wrote it down because it was such an um, eloquent <laughs> line, but I think also that's when you tie that to this idea of a nation and certainly, I mean, when we mentioned in one of the previous talks that, you know, Bawa buys Lunaganga a month before Sri Lanka gains independence. So, um, and then when you think of all the transformations that the country goes from being Ceylon to Sri Lanka, with its economy changing, a civil war, um, these were, this was the kind of real time that he was working in. And I think um, there's many ways in which, like you said, the time, gets connected, but I think also space. And um, as much as is, is in some ways, these drawings really create a very specific space. I think they also do reach back out to much further um, across the world, really. Um, I think that we are sort of coming to the end of our time. Um, and thank you everybody, um, especially Shuchoti and Sean and um, to our other um, speakers for these three sessions as well, Tariq, Shirley, Megal, and Shanna. Um, I don't know if Jyoti and Sean, if you have any kind of concluding comments, it was a really wonderful conversation. Um, I like this idea of um, the kind of idea of recrafting things like connecting and reconnecting or drawing and redrawing. And I, I, I like this idea that you've invited some of us in to kind of think about this archive, but maybe this can be done again in 10 years or maybe this can be done again in 20, what will that bring up? So this 
revisiting these cycles of, of time. I wonder if um, we could just leave thinking about, about that. Absolutely. And, and how, I think, how meaning changes. Yeah. And what is our, not only our response to how meaning changes, but how are we in part responsible for affecting how meaning changes uh, in the world. And I think uh, to, to Jyoti's point, um, we have to acknowledge those we've lost um, most recently as being really fundamental to, to challenging what meaning is um, in Sri Lanka, in art and architecture. Thank you. Um, so on that note, I'll just thank everybody again for being part of these conversations. I hope we'll see you soon um, at the exhibition and I hope that we'll also be able to revisit these conversations then. Um, just a reminder that if you missed um, a part of this conversation or the two previous weeks, um, the recordings are on the Jeff Bauer Trust YouTube, uh, which you can also access um, via our website. And you can also sign up for events, um, including updates on the exhibition via our website. So thank you everybody and have a good night and hopefully we'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very thank much you. for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you, Jyoti and Shai. So nice to see you. Bye, good night. Bye.